Hey, Brian here with Mid-City Vineyard Church. Mid-City Vineyard is located in the heart of New Orleans, Louisiana on Canal Street. You can join us on Saturday nights at 6 p.m. when we worship and gather together. And if you'd learn, uh, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Mid-City Vineyard, you can check us out on Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard, Instagram, at Mid-City Vineyard, and online, midcityvineyard.org. Over the last uh, 10 or so weeks, we've been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5 is where we've been. And every couple of weeks throughout this series, we are opening it up for questions and answers. And so, this week we have a number of questions that people in our community of faith sent in, and we will be addressing some of those questions here in today's podcast. Thanks for checking it out. Much peace to you. So we're going we're gonna to shake it up a little bit tonight. Tonight we are doing a question and answer. So for the last 12 weeks, we have been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We have worked through, in Matthew chapter 5, we have worked through the Beatitudes. And then we took last week to actually spend our time uh, talking about, and it, we took a break away from the Beatitudes, but we, we talked about war. We talked about different views of war, especially with everything that's going on. Uh, in the world and in our country right now. And so over the next couple of weeks, as we work through these teachings through the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to open up after every six or eight weeks, we're going to do a Q&A because I've really, I really do believe that one of the best ways that we actually learn is by asking questions and dialoguing with one another. Now, the downside to this is that you've asked questions and it's not going to be much of a dialogue and not in this setting because I'm going to give potential answers to those questions. But my hope is that those answers would then spur you on uh, to engage in conversation with one another and with others as we move forward. So over the next couple of weeks, as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to encourage you, if you have questions right in the middle of a teaching, jot them down, text them to me, email them, and then we will approach those and we'll address those during the Q&A. But before we uh, jump into the Q&A tonight, let's just start uh, in this with a, with a scripture here and then a couple of things to set up our Q&A time. So in John chapter 9, it says that when Jesus went along, he saw a blind man who had been blind from birth. And the disciples asked, they said, Teacher, who sinned? Did this guy sin or did his parents sin? Why is he blind? Obviously, these guys think somebody must have sinned in order for this guy to be blind. And Jesus says, well, no, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, and while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, and put it in the guy's eyes. And Jesus said, Now go and wash your eyes in the pool, um, in this pool of Siloam. So the man went, he washed, and he came home, and he could actually see. So Jesus was kind of a weird guy. Uh, he rubbed mud in people's faces. His neighbors and those who had uh, formerly known this man, began to ask, isn't this the same guy that used to sit and beg? 
And some claimed that it was. And others said, no, it just looks like him. But the man said, no, it is me. And they said, how have your eyes been opened? And he said, well, the man they called Jesus put mud in, uh, on the ground, made mud, put it in my eyes. And then he told me to go wash. And they said, where's this man now? He said, I don't, I don't know. And they go on about their business. A little bit later, some things come down. I'm going to paraphrase here. Some things go down with the Pharisees and some of these religious guys. And they start, they start shifting blame and trying to figure out what kind of stuff is going on here. You know, what kind, of, what kind of magic is this Jesus guy conjuring up? And they, they tried to start pinning this stuff on Jesus. They start, tried to start pinning things on the blind man. And eventually the blind man comes to the place and he says, Listen, I don't know what happened. All I know is that I was blind, but now I can see. There was a time where I, I couldn't see anything, and now I can see. Richard Rohr, in his book, Everything Belongs, listen to how Rohr says this. He says, if you were to imagine, or if you will imagine, the amount of information that is available today to the ordinary person, imagine it as one unit of information at the time of Jesus. And it took until the year 1500 for that to actually double. Soon after the invention of the printing press, it doubled every hundred years, and then it doubled every 50 years, and then in this century, every 10 years. At the end of 1999, at the end of the second millennium, it doubled every seven months. We are a people on overload, and we are understandably confused and conflicted. We're always talking about the amount of information that we are able to take in in this day and age compared to the amount of information that people were able to take in some 2,000 years ago. And he says over the centuries and the millennia, it has just increased and increased and increased and increased. The amount of information that we have access to, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, whether it's uh, CNN.com, FoxNews.com, whether it's CNN or Fox News, the amount that now we have, or MSNBC, we have 24-7 news. We have it whenever we want it. If you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep and you roll and toss and turn, you have a television now and you can just fill your head and your brain and your imagination with news, with news of war, with rumors of war, with anything that you want, you can get more information. At all times. This week, a particular fellow, speaking of Twitter, that I follow on Twitter wrote it like this. He says, He says, A 30 minute sermon will not teach people to love their neighbors. Their cable news teaches them all week to fear and to hate. They have already been discipled. Think about this for a second. So we come here, which I think is incredibly important. I think that what we do here is of the utmost importance because it is one of our opportunities, one of our opportunities to be shaped and to be formed and to be transformed and to be impacted by the lives of one another, by the scripture, by the communion table. But we do this if, if we're lucky and the teaching I teach is only 30 minutes then you get that 30 minutes a week of that, and yet we get hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of information overload from, from so many other sources. So what are we doing 
and how are we going to come about in this space? I would suggest that when we come to this space, that we would actually allow ourselves to be awake to what the Spirit of God is doing. Because you, you look through the Scripture, and oftentimes Jesus says things like, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, let them hear, let them see. What is Jesus ultimately saying here? He's ultimately saying, listen, listen up, pay attention, wake up. Wake up to what's being said right now. Wake up and allow yourself to be informed and allow yourself to be transformed. Jesus oftentimes referred to disciples. He said, listen, if you can't become like a child, then, then you're not going to get what I'm trying to say. And, and what is Jesus saying there? Ultimately, Jesus is saying, listen, children come to things with the anticipation of learning. Children, all they know, children, not teenagers, children know they don't know everything. By the time you're a teenager, you know everything. The problem is, oftentimes, we carry that on with us. This idea that, you know, I've heard it all. There's not something new for me to learn. I've, I've, ex I, I've seen that. I've heard that. I've been there. I've done that. And if we really think we've reached that point, then the truth is there, we've, we're, done, we're done growing. We're done learning. We're done maturing. We're done experiencing and hearing and seeing what God has for us. And Jesus would say, well, why don't you come to this once again and put it all on the side and start over? It's a do-over. And allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. Allow the Spirit of God to teach us. And that's what I, I would hope even for tonight for us. I, I hope this every week for us. But, but tonight as we move through the Q&A, because we've gotten a couple of really good questions, and uh, I look forward to seeing what, what God will do here tonight. And so, as we move into this, uh, Holy Spirit, once again, that is our prayer, that you would, you would shake us, that you would wake us that you would move, that you would ebb, you would flow in this space. And Lord, we, we, it's kind of a, it's, a, it's a mode of surrender. It's a mode of giving it back to you. Lord, impart truth to us tonight. And, you know, if, Lord, if there are things that, that I say that just kind of, they, they, they don't, they're, they're wrong, they don't make sense, then Lord, let us spit those things out. But may the truth of your spirit really just go to the deepest places tonight, Lord. We welcome you here. Amen. So, the first question that came up tonight. The first question uh, that was posed, and I actually, I ended up putting the questions in an order that would make the most sense for us as a community of faith. That way, uh, because these questions actually ultimately will kind of build on each other. But the first question that was, was sent in was, when teaching over the last number of weeks, what do you mean by two kingdoms and or living the life of the future in the present. So over the last number of weeks, we've, we've used this, I've used this phrase a lot, two kingdoms, kingdom of God, kingdom of the world, and also what, it, what does it mean to live the life of the future in the present. So I grew up using PCs. I grew up on Dell computers. That's, that's what I uh, grew up using. I used those all through uh, high school I used those all through college. I used uh, PCs through the first number of years uh, of work. And then I got married, 
And we needed a, or needed, we wanted a computer for home. And so I do what I just know. I start Googling Dell computers and figuring out what kind of computer we're going to get for the house. And Christy says, well, with the photography that I'm doing, with some of the other design work that I'm doing, I really think we should get a Mac. So it didn't take much convincing because Macs looked cooler. And so I was like, well, then let's just get a Mac. That's fine. So we get a Mac, and now the Mac gets shipped to the house, and the first time we take it out of the box, and I sit down at the Mac, and I immediately realize that I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, the left click button or the right click button isn't the same button as what it was on a Dell, and the, the screen the screens don't minimize the same way or maximize the same way. Everything's backwards. I, the, there's nothing on the desktop except a beautiful picture, and I'm supposed to go fishing around for, for where I'm going to find folders and documents and files and all these kinds of things. And it dawned on me that I have got to learn an entire new, an entirely new system. The way a PC works is in no way, shape, or form the way a Mac works. I mean, the only thing they have in common is that they both turn on. But other than that, they, they have nothing in common. You might think of two kingdoms very much in the same way. I'm going to give you, in the most condensed version I can, I'm going to wor work us through the entire Bible in the next six minutes. Okay, this is, and this is how we're going to find two kingdoms. So, first slide. In Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, what we find in the creation narrative, in the creation myth that we have in Genesis 1 and 2, is that God creates. The main goal of Genesis 1 and 2, and, and you, can, you can read it up and down one side and down the other, but the main thing to take away is that God is creator. The divine creates. And when the divine creates, the divine creates human beings. Adam or Adam means humankind. Eve means life. And so God creates humanity. God creates life. And he places, in this story, he places human beings in a garden. And in that garden, there's no shame. There's no sorrow. There's no, there's no sickness. There's no uh, uh, greed. There's no pride. There's no envy. It's just, it's a beautiful place where God rules where his creation co-rules the creation with him, oversees the creation in line with God. It's, it's a wonderful, blissful, life-giving place. Now, that's in Genesis 1 and 2. If you were to flip all the way to the end of the scripture, go all the way to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Next slide, Micah. So think about this. If we were to actually take sin, the disruption of shalom, ultimately, out of the Bible... We would be left, where did my Bible go? So if we were to take sin out of the Bible, this is what we would be left with. Or we would take all of this out of the Bible. If we took sin out of the scriptures, this is all we'd be left with, this little here. It'd be like a little brochure. Like people could read the Bible in a day. You wouldn't need those year programs or anything. I mean, you could read it lots of times in a day because you would only need to read Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 if there were no sin, if there no, were, were no disruption of shalom. So what happens is you would have, this would be your story. Genesis 1 and 2 is built on life and beauty and grace and mercy and shalom. At the end of the story, in Revelation 21 and 22, what you will find, and go read those four chapters tonight, 
What you will find in the end is that everything that took place in the garden has progressed. And now you find a city. And in that city you find millions and millions of people. And you find that God is still God. And His people are still His people. The people still reign with God over creation. And everything is defined by life. Revelation tells us that in that time, in that new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, there will be no sin, no sickness, no sorrow. There will be uh, no greed, no prejudice, no racism. I mean, it's going to be an amazing, beautiful existence. This life is ultimately where we are headed. Again, take away the disruption of shalom, take away sin, and this is just a continual forward movement. However, sin and the disruption of shalom does enter into the creation. Next slide. And so what we have is we have this, we have this division, we have this, this breaking And the way the story goes is that when Adam and Eve chose to go against God's uh, guidelines, when Adam and Eve chose to go against what God said, and they fell into this, this place which ultimately this shalom of all of creation was disrupted, sin comes into the picture. And when sin comes into the picture, it comes with it things like there's greed and there's racism and there's prejudice and there's, there's uh, envy. There's angst. There's depression. I mean, it's just, it's just this whole gambit of things that come along. And yet, at the same time, we all know that in life we can still experience mercy and love and peace and grace and goodness and joy. But what we have at this point, more or less, are two different kingdoms. We have the kingdom in which the world operates. The best way I could define to you how the kingdom of the world operates is by explaining that the kingdom of the world operates as a power over kingdom. In the kingdom of the world, it's all about exercising power over. Whether it's individuals exercising power over other individuals, whether it's groups exercising power over other groups, whether it's nations exercising power over other nations, it's this idea of climbing the ladder clawing our way to the top and making sure that once we get there, we stay there at all costs. As a common and most accurate uh, uh, characteristic of the kingdom of God, or uh, of the kingdom of the world. And yet, there is also the kingdom of God, which is characterized by love and mercy and beauty and selflessness and giving and sacrifice. But there's a separation between the two. Next slide. And then what happens is God comes in the flesh. God comes to creation, to the earth, in the flesh. And when God comes in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, Jesus actually shows us, here's what life looks like when God is in charge. Here's what life looks like when you are experiencing your full humanity as it was intended. If you want to know what life is supposed to look like, and if you want to know where we're taking this thing, Jesus says, listen to my teachings, but more importantly than that, look at my life. Because the life I live is an exercise in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom is here. The word repent does not mean hit your knees and weep over all the bad things that you think maybe you've done. That's not what repent means. To repent means, hey, change your mind. Turn around. 
Get in on what God's doing. You're headed the wrong direction. See, when Jesus says repent, he's saying to the people of the day, listen, there's something different that's happening. See, you think this is a power game. You think this is about getting all you can and ruling your enemies and conquering your enemies. And Jesus says, repent, turn away from that. Come get in on what I'm doing and watch how I serve people. Watch how I love people. Watch how I extend mercy and grace. Watch how I take part in beauty. Watch how I live selflessly. Get in on what this is because this is how God is. This is the kingdom of God in action. So when we talk about two kingdoms, we still live in a time and an age when the kingdom of the world is in full gear. And there, there, you can you just look at modern day politics. Look at the dynamics of the structures at your office. Look at what your own heart when someone cuts you off. Whatever it might be, but it's this desire to go power over our characteristics of the kingdom of the world. And Jesus is saying, "But there's a different life that I'm inviting you into. It's the kingdom of God. Come get in on this." And what happens is when Jesus dies on the cross and comes back from the dead, Jesus is showing us and he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God, which seemed like it was far off on the right and there was a separation. Now the kingdom of God has come to the earth and you can begin to experience and live into the center of these two circles. And you can experience life and love and mercy and beauty and grace and kindness and goodness and generosity and all of these things. You can experience peace. You can experience this here in the middle of it. Now, it won't be total peace. It won't be total healing. It won't be total of anything because the kingdom of the world still exists. And there's a day in the future when all the powers of darkness will be done away with. Until that day, what we get are the, is the opportunity to experience the life of the kingdom in the future here and now. So when we talk about what does it mean to live the life of the future in the present, we're talking about the, the prayer that Jesus taught us. When Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus is saying, listen, pray this and live this. And there's coming a day in the future when all of life will be characterized by kindness. Well, as my people now put on kindness. There's coming a day when greed will be done away with and generosity is the order of the day. So now, as my people, as children of God, put off greed and put on generosity. Get in on the life of the future here, now, in the present. Remember when Jesus said to Pilate, he said, listen, my kingdom is not of this world, but my kingdom is of another realm. This is what Jesus is saying. He said to Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world, do you remember this? He says, if it was of this world, then my disciples would be fighting right now and they'd be setting me free. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a violent kingdom. It's not the kind of kingdom where we grab and, and we claw for position. But watch, I will conquer death and I will conquer the grave, but I will do it in the way of going into death 
and then coming back out without having to lift a sword or a gun or a spear. My kingdom is not of this world. It's of another realm. So when we talk about two kingdoms, this is what we're talking about. When we talk about the kingdom of the world, we're talking about the power structure that is. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about the invitation into the life that Jesus has invited you and he's invited me into. Now we talk about kingdoms all the time around here. And I think this is, a, go to the next slide, Mike, and show us. So here's the natural ultimate progression. Revelation 1 and, or Genesis 1 and 2 all the way on the far left. We find the divide. We find where Jesus brings peace to the broken divide and ultimately, ultimately where this thing leads, which is once again, Revelation 21 and 22. God is our God. We are his people. We reign with God over creation. Does that explain two kingdoms to, a, to an extent? Does that help or is there a question on that? Let's, let's do it the fun way. The best way. Okay, if you have a question, you can email it to me and I can, you know. Question number two that we got. We talked a lot about Jesus uh, being all about peace and nonviolence. Next question, Mike. So, what about the verse where Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword? This is a good question, uh, because this phrase and this quote of Jesus seems to be directly a direct contradiction of everything that we teach and understand about Jesus being the prince of peace and nonviolent. So the passage comes from Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. I didn't provide you with an outline tonight, so you just might jot down things on your own here this evening, but Matthew 10, 24. Uh, 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace. I came instead to bring a sword. So what is Jesus saying here? In Matthew 10, chapter, or chapter 10, verse 34, as we've said before, everything that we read in the scripture, and anywhere for that matter, must be read in context. We have to read everything in context because otherwise we can so easily pull stuff out and just make it mean whatever we want it to mean. But if you look at this particular verse in context, what we realize is that Jesus has pulled his disciples together, his 12 disciples, he's pulled them together. And now he's actually sending the disciples out. And what he's saying to the disciples, it's very fascinating, but he says, I'm sending you out to your fellow Jews. He says, in this first sending out, I'm not sending you to the Gentiles, I'm not sending you to the Samaritans, I want you to go and to the Jews, and I want them to hear from you all the things that I've been teaching you. I want you to heal, I want you to cast out demons, I want you to mend broken hearts, I want you to offer forgiveness, I want you to tell people that the way of peace is here. But here's the problem. The Jews of the day were not expecting a Messiah to come in this way. The Jews of the day were expecting a Messiah who would come and who would rule as a forceful king. 
Remember, context at the time, the Jewish people were under the rule of Rome. And for what, what they wanted was they wanted a king to come in, to pull them together, to arm them, and to then defeat the Roman army so that they could be out from under Roman rule. That's what they wanted. That's what they expected. And so to hear the message of the disciples that says, hey, listen, the captives are being set free. The, the least of these are, 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 being, are, are being raised up and be, being given a place and people are being healed of their sicknesses and the blind people are seeing and tax collectors are being brought in. Oh, good news. And they would say, well, what about the Romans? When are they going to be destroyed? Oh, well, that's not what the Messiah is doing. This, this guy is different. This would not always be heard as good news. And Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples. He doesn't want them to be put off by this. But he says, listen, I'm bringing people to a place of having to make some hard decisions. Who are you going to follow? Where are you going to go? And when these words start to be spoken and when these decisions start to have to be made, you need to understand that it's not always going to be peaceful. There's going to be conflict here because people aren't going to like what you're saying. In context, Jesus is saying, make sure you understand and you're prepared to know that conflict is on its way. That this is going to divide people, which is why he uses the, the sword here. It's going to divide people. Where Some people are going to decide to go this way and others are going to decide to go this way. Jesus' purpose here is to bring a conflict of decision making. And the truth is, Jesus is not triumphalistic about the future of the Christian mission. Jesus is not expecting that everyone's just going to get on board with this. Even to this day, I don't think Jesus is expecting that. That everyone's just going to jump on board. And so he gives, I mean, this is why the part about persecution is the last of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Because Jesus knows you will be persecuted. Listen, when you think about two kingdoms, and this, when you and I, as followers of Jesus, start thinking through this two-kingdom system, and we realize that what Jesus is inviting us into is kindness, over power over when we understand that jesus is inviting us into generosity over greed when we we understand that jesus is inviting us into nonviolence over violence you need to understand that you are going to experience persecution you're going to experience persecution in some way shape or form at times you're going to get walked on at times you're going to get things that you might not even deserve and jesus knows this that's why the gospel is so cutting. That's why Jesus says, will you follow me? Will you get in on what I'm doing? But in this particular phrase, I've not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Jesus is speaking in exaggerated speech. He's speaking in exaggerated language, hyperbole. And so, when reading these types of uh, passages, we have to always come back to context. Context, context, if we're going to really understand what's going on. The third question we got sent in by so-and-so. 
Oh, this was a, yeah, this is such a fantastic question. Okay. Blessed are the, but a boom. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the brokenhearted. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are these people. This question says, listen, that's great. I can know that. I can read that. I can even believe that. It seems that uh, we can go to church and pastors make it sound all great. And then we walk out of the doors into real life. How does one feel blessed when life sucks? Yeah, so I need someone else to answer that one because I was like, wow. No, I think I have something. Let's try it. Here's my take. My hope is that every single person in the room has asked this question before. Um, because if we're not asking this question, we might not be really experiencing life. <laughs> we just might not be. And, and the truth is, even tonight, there might be some in a room of 40 or 50 people that actually feel this way right now. Like, ooh, big deal. Okay, blessed are the, those who mourn, you know, for they shall be comforted. Well, I don't feel comforted. And the mourning and life still keeps going on. And it sucks. I thought the question was most fascinating in this regard. I can, I can know it. I can read it. I can believe it. But what good is that? Well, knowing something, reading something, and believing something only works for your head. Knowing it, reading it, and believing it does absolutely nothing for your heart. I'm fully convinced of that. And as long as we journey with Christ from our heads, we will not find peace. We will not find comfort. See, it's one thing to know something. I know a lot of stuff, personally. I know a lot of stuff. It's a whole other thing to experience something. And my understanding and my life as a follower of Christ has been one where experiencing God is what changes my life. Experiencing God is what changes my heart. Experiencing God is what changes my relationships. Experiencing God is what changes my thought pattern. Richard Rohr, the guy who I read earlier, says, we don't think ourselves into a new way of living. We live ourselves into a new way of thinking. I, I love this because, you know what, I, I can think it, think it, think it, think it, think it. But until it goes here, and I can't even, I've, I've realized this in my own life. Like, I can't force my thoughts to go here. Can you? I, I just, I've never been able to do it. And so what is needed is an experience, more of an experience of God. Now that to me, you say, well, how do you do that? <laughs> that is the million dollar question. How do you do that? Here are a couple thoughts. First off, in our culture, 
we must go back to defining what it means to be blessed. Because in our culture, you are blessed when you have a good paycheck and you don't have to worry about the bills. You are blessed when you have that nice car. You are blessed when you have that home. You are blessed when you have that perfect relationship. In our culture, you are blessed when you have children. In our culture, you are blessed when you can eat out all the time. And you are blessed when you have season tickets. And you are blessed when X, Y, Z, whatever it is. That's how the culture and the society defines what it is to be blessed. Think about how we talk. It stormed a few weeks ago. Did your, war, did your car get water in it? No, I was really blessed. Well, what the hell was I then? Because my car had water in it. Why do we talk like that? Because we're, we are in church. <laughs> we are geared to think, you know. Or, you know, the Lord has really blessed me with five children. Well, what about the couple that is infertile? What about the couple that cannot get pregnant? What is, what is the Lord has really blessed me with five children? What does that say to them? That the Lord does not bless you? Now, I know what I, I, know what I mean. The Lord has really blessed me with five children. But do you see how that communicates? That, we, that it's like, well, I, I'm blessed and you're not. That's or the Lord really blessed us with Harvey. <laughs> but I have a lot of friends who live in Corpus and who live in Galveston. So is that just God giving them the finger? Like, ha, you guys got Katrina, but I'm going to bless you with Harvey and screw these guys over in Galveston. So that maybe is a little bit of insight. This is how we understand blessing a lot of times. I would then want to push back and say, well, what does it mean to be blessed? And I would push back to you and say, what is your expectation of God? What is your expectation of God? Let me, let me explain this to you in how I was taught. I was taught, hey, you know, like I'm going through the ringer and people would say, you know, just if you would just turn your life over to God, if you just give your life to God, you'll see that this stuff will, will make more sense. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Infertility doesn't make more sense if you give your life to God. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that infertility becomes a bigger issue when you've given yourself and surrendered yourself to God. So I was taught, hey, you know, when you come to God and you surrender to God, then, you know, God will help make sense of your divorce or God will help make sense of, you know, why you lost your house but your neighbor who God loves more didn't, or whatever it might be. So now I would push back and say, well, wait a minute, that must be a, a wrong expectation in my own psyche, in my own soul. What is your expectation of God? What does it mean to you to actually have faith? What does faith mean? And what is the invitation of Jesus? Here's my take on it. After 20 years of following Jesus, after walking through countless heartaches with, in my own life and with people who I've had the chance to walk through things with, I'm very convinced that in Scripture, Jesus does not promise 
Now hear, hear the whole thing. That Jesus does not promise to answer all of our prayers the way we want them answered. I know there's a passage, and that could be next time's question. Well, Jesus says, ask, ask, and it will be given. He's not talking about a brand new truck or the winning lotto ticket or fertility or whatever it is. Jesus is saying, listen, ask for the Spirit, the presence of God, and it will be given. But all those other prayers, there's no guarantees. There's no magic formula. There's no promise of, oh, yeah, you ask for it, and it's going to happen. You ask that your bills will be paid, and it's just going to be easy. No, there's no promise of that. Or you ask that that relationship will work out, and it's just going to happen. No, sometimes those relationships don't work out. The greatest promise in Scripture, as I understand it, is the promise when Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. That is one promise that I have experienced to be true from Christ over and over and over again. Now, that message doesn't do well in church, so most preachers don't preach that one. But you're not in most churches. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the BS that hits the fan because this is what real life is. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. And he says, but here's the thing. I've overcome the world. In Matthew 20, where is it? 20, 28, 20. Jesus says, here's the thing. You're going to go... You're going to be a part of the kingdom. And I want you to know that everywhere you go, I promise you that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. The one thing I promise more than anything else is that I will be with you. But I don't feel God with me. I know. And so now what Jesus invites us into is will we trust God? Will we trust the divine? Will we move into a place where we can still our souls and still our hearts and our spirits and our minds before God? Will we, will we create spaces where we can simply meditate on, okay, God is still good. God is still in charge. God is still in the business of being present with me. And so I'm going to take this with me today, all throughout the day, and trust in what the divine has said. The way that we grow, the way that we experience God, is when we come face to face with our true reality. When we come face to face, you see, most of us, we, we, we bump up against reality, and then we do things to get away from it. We drink, we smoke weed, we have sex, we go to bars, we bounce from partner to partner. We go to church. We do any number of things to not deal with the reality of our situation. And I think one of the greatest things we can do is we can come face to face and actually accept our reality. When we begin to accept our reality and where we are, when we bump into life and then we say, okay, here's what life has brought me. This is my reality. It's in this place that God begins 
and we begin to experience this presence and we begin to experience the peace. We can become real with ourselves. We become real with God. So the beatitude, blessed are those, it's when we find ourselves in those places and we come back to declaring that understanding that God is for us, God is with us, God will not abandon us. And I would say to you, because I know there are some in this room, I would say that the way that we are morphed, formed, and transformed is coming face to face with the reality of where we are and allowing God in that space. And I wish I was a better preacher and better pastor than this, but some days it just sucks. And some days it just does. And some days it does not. And that is life. Don't ever think that Jesus didn't have days that were just awful. I promise you, it's not recorded, I promise you, of those 40 days in the desert, some of those days were not awesome. You don't eat. I mean, I missed one meal, and I'm hangry. I promise you, Jesus was not all like, woohoo, not eating 40 days, this is amazing. Not at all. Jesus was not happy in the garden the evening after the Passover meal, knowing that Judas was going to come, that he was going to be, be betrayed. If anyone in the room has ever been excited after being betrayed by a very close friend, speak now. No, because it's an awful feeling, and Jesus was human, and Jesus felt awful. And what did Jesus need? Did he feel blessed? No. Did he need to know? You know, I am blessed. No, he needed to experience the presence of the divine with him right then and right there. That's what he needed. And I think that's what Jesus got. Last question. And then we're going to share communion together. How will Mid-City Vineyard... Okay, this question, I, I had to... How do I rephrase it? Okay. How will Mid-City Vineyard implement the losers, or the least of these, in quotes, having opportunities. You know, how will the community of faith practice the truth of Jesus that God's favor is really on everybody, not just a special few? Yes. I like this. Because traditionally in church, and I, I, I know this, I, I've been in really big church, and traditionally you, you, you look for the most skilled, you look for the most... Um, 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 educated people to to lead the, the studies or to do this or to do that and so this person was like I'm not that person how am I going to get a chance like how are we going and I was like yes so I'm all for the church of the least of these the losers the misfits the addicts the cutters those who are gay those who are straight those who are trying to figure it out along the way those who are Christians and those who are not, those who are trying to figure it out along the way, we're going to be the kind of church where, you know what, you get to play. It's kind of like everybody gets to play. Now, this is important to realize. I am not an egalitarian from the standpoint of, and, and the way that's used in church is that men and women can't do the same thing. I'm completely an egalitarian from that standpoint. Men and women can do all the same stuff. 
women can go plant churches and women can preach and women can pastor churches. And uh, so there, there's, there's no dividing line there. I'm not an egalitarian from the standpoint that everybody can all do the same things. What I mean by that is that not everybody can stand up and teach effectively. And if that's not in your gift mix, then we're, we're not just going to say, oh, well, you're the least of these. And just because you're a terrible teacher, we'll just give you lots of opportunities to teach. No, what we'll do is we'll say, hey, what are you, where are you gifted? What are you really good at? Are you really good at pastoring people and loving on people? Well, then, you know what? You need to be in a role where you're pastoring people and loving on people. Not just the special people get to do things. Or, let me rephrase that. All the special people get to do all the things because everybody's going to be special. What was that? That was a Saturday Night Live skit, right? I'm special. Doggone it. Oh, it's just me? Well, well I'm smart enough. I'm sharp enough. You smiling. Yes, thank you. Sure you are. <laughs> thank you, Jeremy. Well, uh... So here's the thing. When you have something in your heart, bring it up. Everybody gets to play. Each week, we say, if you need prayer tonight, come on up here, and we're going to get some folks to pray for you. The folks that we get to pray are people that we have actually sat down with, and we've gone through some just basic, like, here's some very simple ways to pray for people. Everyone in the room is welcome to come to that class and to learn just some very simple ways to pray for people and then to be released to pray for people. We don't have special prayers other than that. That's the criteria. You know, did we sit around and did we talk about how to pray for people? And if we've done that, then you're released to pray for people. I mean, it's like, that's the kind of thing. Everybody, once your background check comes back positive, is able to play and work with the kids. Everybody gets a chance. Sign up. Everybody, that was, that was a shameless, shameless. It was shameless. I, I don't feel bad about that. But we all get to play. We all get to play. And that's what we're going to do around here. You know? I'm hopeful that there's some other musicians in the room besides me. Because, you know, like, this is not intended to be a, a one-man or a one-couple show. This is not in, you know, we're getting started. We're a year and a half into it. But we're, more people doing more things. Let's do it. Everybody gets to play. We're not just looking for a certain few, a certain couple of talented or whatever. Now, if you want to lead worship, you need to be able to sing. A little, just a little. I mean, just carry the tune so that everybody can follow you, but you get the point. So that's what we're going to do around here. We're going to do it together.